Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A negative trade balance. Some countries with a big deficit seem to be doing okay, like America, even the UK to an extent, whereas others like Japan have a trade surplus and an economy that's on a road to nowhere. So how important is a trade balance that is positive for the overall good of an economy? And what about jobs? If you import lots, does that mean you're doing away with local jobs? That was obviously one of the concerns of Donald Trump. Too many jobs going to China. Today, can you really survive with a negative Negative trade balance. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, obviously, not everyone can have a positive trade balance. If some are positive, others have to have trade deficits because it is a zero-sum game. But does that mean countries with a trade deficit don't fare as well? Well, not really. I mean, the, the US trade deficit hit $81 billion in September this year. It's the worst ever. Is that a problem for the US? Well, maybe it is a little bit, but they've been in a, a trade deficit for a long time and seem to be doing pretty well. And Steve will tell us, I'm sure, that that is because they are the reserve currency for the world. But there are other countries as well with their uh, trade deficits that aren't doing so badly. And of course, GDP is calculated on government and public spending, so consumption by the uh, by consumers and businesses, plus business investment in capital goods and the net trade balance all added together. So a deficit, a trade deficit, does pull your GDP figure down. But if your economy is healthy otherwise, then, then Steve, you can still have a strong GDP, even if you have that uh, that trade deficit, can't you? You can, um, but I think it ends up being something which is quite conditional. And and uh, I mean, because if, if you, you're coming from the Australian background, of course, Australia was running trade deficits for decades before it's run some recent trade surpluses. But normally, it's been in a trade deficit situation. And the rationale for that that you, you get to to justify why it has this long running trade uh, deficit from the point of view of of mainstream economists was, oh well, this must be because we're we're investing more than the rest of the world you know our savings aren't enough to finance what we're doing so we're borrowing from overseas as well mm. uh, and this will ultimately mean we turn around having a trade surplus now we are having a bit of australia is having a bit of a trade surplus in current years occasionally up and down but uh, a bit of a surplus but the whole exp- explanation that gives is that you if you're running a trade deficit it's because you're importing more capital goods than you're exporting and therefore you're going to build up your productive capacity and in the future you'll flip over um now, that, you know, it's, it's a nice little argument, which when you look at the empirical data, it just doesn't make sense because um, there are many countries which have had sustained deficits and haven't turned them around and end up uh, having, you know, long running collapses. The Argentina and the Turkey cases come to mind at the moment. Um, so I, I think it's, to me, there's a lot of woolly thinking about trade deficits and trade surpluses, and the woolly thinking isn't just restricted to neoclassical thought. It also turns up on some of the progressive mm. thought as well, which we'll which we'll get to. But I mean, is there? I mean, I mean, is it a case that you could have a you know you could bumble along with a, with a narrow trade deficit and you'd 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 get by? It's only when it gets out of control. So I mean, Australia mm. spent 
you know, most of the last 50 years in deficit, didn't it? It's only the last five years. And then it's been coal and iron ore prices, really, which have, have given it a surplus. Uh, but it was, um, you know, it was it was getting up to 4% of, of GDP before the pandemic in terms of its surplus. Uh, but before that, you know, go back a few years. And, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it was... Uh, in deficit, but had a high, a high GDP growth rate. I mean, you know, quite a bit since 2000. I mean, it touched 5%, uh, the GDP growth rate, on some occasions, even though the country was uh, in a trade deficit. Yeah, there's no necessity that one, the negative ones are going to give you a negative on the other. But I, I, my perspective, and I, th- this puts me at odds with both neoclassicals and modern monetary theory, is that if you're running a, a trade uh, deficit, you are most you're you're effectively the basic thing is you're you're importing more than you're exporting, and that is um, draining. Uh, it, it will end up uh, being a drain on your your local monetary production. You're you're effectively providing money for other countries uh, to do their own development. That's it's not a case that uh, Japan is using Australian dollars to um, to invest in producing new uh, new vehicles, uh, but that Japan. Uh, because because we're running a deficit in terms at, at the at the individual level, uh, you know if you sum up all the Australian individuals, all Australian companies, they're importing more than they're exporting. Uh, what we are doing is effectively enabling uh, Japan to create more yen uh, to invest in its own its own productive capacity. So I I uh, in this case I find myself strongly siding with what Keynes hoped to achieve. At Bretton Woods, and of course failed because he was overruled by the Americans, which was a regime which put strict limits on how large not just trade surpluses, but trade deficits, but also trade surpluses could get, and put controls on both deficit and surplus countries. That if you were running a deficit, you would ultimately be forced to devalue your currency against the international currency, which was going to be the Bancor. But if you ran a surplus, you were taxed on mm. the surplus, and the tax was used to help develop, uh, in particular, third world countries that we would expect to run a trade deficit because if they're going to industrialise, they first of all have to import uh, industrial uh, you know, uh, investment goods from the, from the uh, first world before they can manufacture their own. So that was the idea, and, and Keynes's target, I think, was something like a no more than a 2% of GDP surplus or deficit. But if you looked around the world these days, you'd be hard-pressed to find countries within the minus 2 to plus 2 range. Most of them either got you know more than 2% deficit or more than a 2% surplus. Yeah. And I've got to, I mean, my, my feeling this is a major reason why we have such an unbalanced uh, international economic system. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's bad news, isn't it, for, for developing economies where they've got a, a, a high demand. If you want to grow, for example, you've got to buy capital equipment from overseas, and to do that, you've got to... Um, you, you've got to spend money in a in a foreign currency, uh, mm. uh, uh, you know, which obviously devalues your your own currency if you if you're sending a lot of that overseas and converting it. But for developed economies, so say the UK buys lots of cars from Japan, so Japan all of a sudden has a lot of British pounds. Uh, I mean, it's got to do something with that money. So you know, it's, it, it doesn't it all come back and create jobs back in Britain. No, not well. This, this or is investment. I, I mean, we, that's, we, you're getting this question yeah. about foreign investment as well. But I mean, what, what you what you've got is, is is Britain is buying Japanese cars with British pounds. Yeah, and that, that there's many ways that can be worked through the mechanics. But the simplest way to think about it is that uh, you know, British consumers give a Japanese company British pounds, uh, which means that the Japanese company uh, has to convert those 
uh, if it's going to re- if it's going to remit the profits to Japan, then it has to convert those pounds into into yen. And you could you can and I've had this uh, discussion with uh, Warren Mosler at one stage some some years ago now that it doesn't matter how this is done; it all goes through the international markets and so on. But at the end of the day, the result of British buyers of Japanese cars is that British bank accounts go down in pounds and Japanese bank accounts go up in yen, and that and the, 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 you can imagine that the pounds that are uh, that are paid to the Japanese company end up being submitted to the Central Bank of Japan uh, as you know money to be uh, to be converted into yen by the company and. The Japanese uh, central bank then has additional pounds as part of its foreign currency reserve, while the Japanese company has additional yen, which right. it can then use to 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 further invest on developing Japanese cars. So you're saying the net the net, res- the net result is if if we buy lots of Japanese cars, then uh, Japanese banks will have lots of pounds in reserve, which presumably no, not not the Japanese not the Japanese banks. They they, they the, the 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 reserves are predominantly going to be held by the. Um, by the central bank, the, no. the, the private banks themselves will have you know foreign currency as part of their overall uh, allocation of assets. Uh, but so the, more, the basic right, so more yeah. pounds sitting overseas in central banks is the, is the net result yeah, if you've yeah, got. Yeah. So and, and, um, and, some, and, 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 and therefore yeah. probably you say, well, okay, we need that. That means we're running short of money uh, cash locally, so we've got our own we've got our own uh, currency. So we will just expand our money supply to compensate. But all of that, well, that's that's yeah. All that's of what that, I think, is the, is the effect. Yeah, all of that devalues the pound, doesn't it? So, uh, so if you and, and it, so theoretically, and I know theory and reality are a long part, a long way apart in economics. But in theory, indeed, um, if uh, if the pound gets cheaper because we are buying a lot in, uh, and all that money is sitting overseas and, and devalues because there's so much of it sitting overseas, then that should make uh, yeah, we it becomes cheaper. It makes us cheaper uh, for our exports. So we should become more of an export economy. Yeah, but the trouble is to export. You've got to invest, yeah, and and this is the point that I think that conventional economics and um, parts of modern monetary theory as well just don't do justice to because to invest requires money. Now, if you if you were following the sort of export oriented industrialization program that countries like Japan and Korea and China uh, have done over the last forty or fifty years. What they're doing, saying is we're going to export much more than we import if we can you know, manage sell them. Initially, it was cheap, Jap- cheap uh, Japanese cars and and uh, and uh, and cheap goods. And then what we would do with that money is uh, the extra money we're making over from overseas sales, we reinvest in developing our technology. And over time, we produce more and more sophisticated cars. Uh, and then and then expand and, and become dominant on the on the car market, and that is precisely what Japan did. I can remember as a as a school kid, and I'm talking back at the age of about six, uh, you know, uh, with with mates in the class talking over that with six year olds discussing as as they tend to do um, how good various cars are, and always rubbishing the Japanese and saying how good the Holden and the and the Ford were. Mm. You know, how misinformed were you? Forward. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, we actually at the age of six, I wasn't too far off the mark. Mark because mm. you know you had these tiny little things like the Datsun 1000, for example, um, you know, and, and then you said who'd buy them? Well, somebody who wanted a cheap car and couldn't afford an expensive Europe uh, American designed Australian manufactured car. And over time, uh, because there was that market segment that the rest of the market global car manufacturing system was ignoring, uh, they 
they, they got the sales, they got the revenue, and the whole pressure was to produce better and better quality cars. And now, of course, Japan is the country, well, it's, it's losing out uh, in the elect- electric car race to some extent, but it became the country with a, with a reputation for quality cars, yeah. not junk. Yeah. And that was because they, they, they were how the, the, the export surplus generated revenues that could be used to invest and drive their uh, manufacturing capabilities up. So what's worse in your view then, a, a country that's got a high trade deficit or a country that's got a trade surplus, but it's the result of a lot of foreign direct investment? Because that can often disguise the figure. So we, we know Japan, for example, is busy uh, uh, you know, spending money in many parts of the world, uh, creating uh, creating jobs perhaps, certainly creating products which are counted as exports, although not necessarily contributing much to jobs. Um, in my and this is again, this is why I'm directly contradicting what I see people in MMT arguing. Uh, I think that if you if you want to um, if you're looking at your own self interest, then I think the best situation for a country is a trade surplus. Uh, numerous, irrespective reasons. of where the money comes from to pay for the investment in those companies or the yeah, ownership of those with companies. You, with you, yeah, I mean, for the, if if you if you're doing it by domestic sales. Uh, then you're getting the money directly for a domestic corporation. So it, and it travels back to something that the post-Keynesian economic literature is quite strong on, and I'm, I wish this turned up more in, in how monetary theory thought about um, international trade, uh, is that when you look at the, the way in which goods are manufactured, corporations face declining marginal cost and have excess capacity. Uh, this, is the, this is the rule throughout the world uh, that manufacturing is done in, in factories that are designed by engineers to be most efficient at their hundred at, you know at full capacity uh, because you're competing against other firms you have excess capacity uh, in, which means with the excess capacity you can take advantage of any mistakes your competitors make um, and you're also able to handle growth in the economy where you know the economy gets larger than you expect and demand grows. You have the capacity to sell into that directly rather than having to build new factories before you can sell into it if you're working at full capacity. So all these corporations are operating with excess capacity. You've got excess capacity and you can't uh, make use of that excess capacity on the domestic market, then you try the export market. Mm. And this is a, a lot of think of what was the reason for the success of Japan's industrialization. They were selling a lot of products to domestic buyers. I mean, if you look at Japan's industry, uh, it began with, I think it was, I think it was Mr. Honda, who was the first one to strap an electric, mo- electric, mo- uh, sorry, a, a, a petrol motor, a four stroke motor onto a bicycle. And that's all that, you know, in the aftermath of the Second World War, that's all the Japanese consumers could afford. Uh, and at the same time started developing, and you, know, you had Toyota and, and the other companies coming in as well, developing cars for a, a very small luxury market domestically. Um, but that was also a, a, exactly the same cars could be sold into a very large cheap car market in the rest of the world. Mm. And this meant that they um, they had... They were using more of their capacity than they could have used if they just stuck with um, with um, selling to the domestic market. And for this reason, if you have a, if you are, have a country which, in general, is running a trade surplus with its manufacturing sector, then it's going to have a higher level of capacity utilization of its factories, and as a result of that, lower costs per unit. Because since you have such high fixed costs yeah. and your variable your marginal costs are constant or falling, um, 
the higher the output you do, the lower your unit costs and the higher your profit. Yeah, All economies of scale. Reason, yeah. So, yeah. But no, no, not economies of scale, not economies of utilisation. Mm. Uh, this, is, this is one mistake we make because economies of scale mean if you have a blast furnace which is, you know, one metre cubed, uh, then you've got six square metres of metal to make it and it can make one, one cubic metre no. of... Uh, so it's capacity utilisation, maximising capacity. capacity utilisation. Yeah, yeah. With, with, if, you, if you target export sales, then you have a higher level of capacity utilisation. You benefit from that with lower unit costs and then you can invest as well. So it's a whole series of positive feedbacks. Right, but if that, make, that, that's if it's your, you know, company in your, your company in your country. But if you've got, yeah. say, Toyota said, right, we are going to build five new car plants in the UK, and that mm. sort of crowds out the opportunity for Dobby cars, which were just about to break into, into the market. Oh, damn. I know. Yeah. Uh, and everyone's mm. buying a Toyota because there's lots of them around, plus Toyota are exporting a lot uh, to, to Europe then that foreign direct investment is helping, you know, it may be creating jobs locally, but is the country really benefiting from having foreign money coming in, foreign money going back out, you know, the, the profits being uh, re- repatriated back to, uh, back to Japan? Oh, no, I think that's a weakness. And, like, and, and this was the Australian economy was the classic for that. At one mm. stage, they had five car manufacturers there, all 100% foreign-owned. And, to, and one, if you look at you know, Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage and the modern variants of it as well, they all assume that uh, that capital and the incomes to capital and labour remain in the countries in which the the products are sold. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, they can't make their welfare claims. But, you, know, you can't say welfare of the UK is going to increase if half if the profits end up going back to Japan. Um, so I think it's it, it's it's erroneous to rely upon foreign direct investment in that sense. Um, Which GDP I, I, doesn't I would, GDP doesn't pick that up. That's why we look at gross national income, isn't it? Because GDP that is basically GDP plus yeah, well, the, the, the money flowing in yeah. and out of the economy. So it, it so it accounts for payments going out to foreign companies. So Ireland, for example, gave up really on GDP because it was becoming so distorted. Because there's a country where there's so much money coming in and going out again, <laughs> money laundering. Um, yeah. You know, without necessarily anything being yeah. produced, you know, so the the, the, the likes of uh, Amazon and so forth. And then, and that's, you know, why, why I think the policies, again, that the, the Asian countries have followed, that predominantly they've done it with their own local manufacturers. Mm. They've had, uh, you, you, you just didn't see them doing the sorts of, uh, you know, like, you know, China is producing, I don't actually know the name of any of the Chinese car companies, okay? It's, they haven't got to the stage where they've penetrated the mindset in the same way that the Japanese cars did. But the scale of Chinese car manufacturing is, is enormous, and it's all Chinese companies that are doing it. Um, I think we now have Tesla going in there, and that, that is the one of the, one of the few reasons that I can accept um, a foreign direct investment to make your vehicles rather than doing it yourselves because there is so much technology that is proprietary to, te- to Tesla uh, that nobody else has that, you know, it's just not, it's just not possible to compete with them in that market. And so if, if you want, if you're going to have your, your people who are going to be buying their cars from overseas, you might as well get them to buy it locally. And at least the wages are being paid to local workers rather than ones overseas. So you, you retain some of the, of the cash flow that otherwise would be going out in purchasing exp- purchasing imports. So, in the what happened in the US? Because in the early seventies, the US didn't have a, uh, a trade deficit, or if it did, it was very small. 
it was around 2005, it got down to minus 5.5% of GDP. It's bounced back. Mm. But that is a, a, you know, that's a that's a, a big figure. Isn't it? it's, actually, it's also misleading when you quote it as a percentage of GDP because you're quoting a ratio against something that actually includes the number that you're quoting. So, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it actually it brings, confusing. The, brings it, well, it brings the number down even more, doesn't it? But why, th- why that turn from being, you know, little or no trade deficit to all of a sudden now where we just assume that America has a trade deficit and, you know, even though Donald Trump tried to fix it, it looks unfixable, doesn't it? Well, this this is the point that Yanis Varoufakis makes very well in the Global Minotaur, and and that is that once America insisted on it being the reserve currency of the planet, then effectively the seat of its state of it, the the fate of its manufacturing sector was sealed because there was going to be demand for American dollars over and above the demand for American goods, and consequently. Yeah, the, the, with, with a even even back in the days, the fixed exchange rate that was pressure uh, for America to to devalue. Uh, once once you had the um, floating exchange rates, then people would be buying American dollars for the sake of having American dollars, which was would drive up, pardon me, drive up the exchange rate, making American dollars more expensive and make the manufacturing sector uncompetitive. So over time, it's a curse to be the reserve currency for a planet. And this is why I find it quite amusing uh, looking at back at Harry Dexter White uh, in the Bretton Woods agreements, uh, overruling Keynes and saying, no, we're not going to have, we're not going to create an artificial currency. We want the American dollar to be the reserve currency of the planet, which was in American terms, we want to blow one of our feet off. Uh, because it hobbled, it made, the, it made the American financial sector absolutely essential to the global economy, and, and certainly that side of America has done very well, thanks very much. But the manufacturing sector has suffered uh, because its dollar is overvalued because it is the exchange, it is the international reserve currency. So what about, I mean, Donald Trump's point was as well that, you know, that uh, all these foreign uh, companies producing stuff which America was buying now rather than producing was taking away American jobs. But, you know, I've read stuff saying, actually, this ar- this argument about uh, jobs going overseas is, is difficult to, to quantify. So, for example, if Japan makes cars and exports them to America, the American has to find a job to pay for that car. If, you know, if nobody has a job, nobody can afford the cars, therefore the sale's not made. So there has to be job, there has to be a, a job that's replaced the job that's been taken away. Otherwise, people can't buy anything. Or you have a declining economy, which is what America's had. Mm. Um, and like Paul Krugman was a major one to argue that, you know, just dismissing the whole idea that jobs were exported effectively um, by uh, the relocation of production from American corporations to Asia. Uh, he's finally, I've seen just recently, conceded, yes, OK, I was wrong. Uh, it, it, we, there, there has been a reduction in American uh, employment and obviously reduction in American manufacturing capability uh, by the relocation of production by transnationals to third world countries, and um, and in, you know in, in that sense, China, uh, Korea, uh, Japan, in particular, have all um, industrialized on the basis of an American policy uh, that was you know asserting American power, but actually hobbling America in, in its ch- chance to maintain its industrial lead over time. Your point about imports, that if you don't import lots of stuff and you produce it locally, then you're going to develop the uh, the scale at which you can produce it far more effectively and then you'll have more surplus to export overseas. Mm. And you, you gave the example of Japan for that. I mean, there's, a, there's another argument, isn't it, that say if you import a lot, then, uh, for example, you lower your trade barriers, 
you're going to improve the performance of your domestic producers. You know, they're going to find out what is it that they're doing overseas that we could do better. And so you you create a more efficient local industry, which over time would mean that you would be able to, particularly if your currency is losing value in the meantime because of all those imports, um, then you'd, uh, you'd, you'd develop a, an export industry over time. It might take a long time, mind you. We might all be yeah, dead by Yeah, maybe then. like you know, one, or, one, or, one or two millennia. I mean, it... it, 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 it the, the, when you, this is where I, I like the work of Danny Roddick in, in particular uh, and a, a few other empirically oriented trade trade researchers. They've found that the countries which did that protected their industries and put their industries under pressure to compete with imports uh, were the ones that developed over time. So, and, like, and also like Michael Hudson's own, his, his PhD thesis was called America's Protectionist Takeoff. So if you take a look back at the the 1800s uh, and see what what it, even part of the 1700s I think um, what led to the development of American uh, industrial capability was were tariffs that prevented European and, and particularly British imports and that meant that America had to develop its own iron and steel industry uh, which it which it duly did and 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 that gave it a technological lead over the Europeans. So ultimately they could say, let's have free trade, and now we've got the technologically more advanced industry. So uh, it, it's it's not the case that you should, you know, protection all the time is superior. Uh, what ends up happening is that if if you grab the trade surplus for yourself, invest that and push your industrial level forward, then at some point you're big enough and strong enough to say, let's have free trade with the rest of the world and drive the, tra- the trade barriers down. Same thing applied to the UK. Uh, when when trade uh, bef- in the McCandless period, uh, before the Scottish, Scottish industry developed um, not just the steam engine but also the spinning jenny and all the uh, technological revolutions of the early industrial revolution, uh, both Indian and Chinese textiles were much cheaper and much better quality than the British, and the British then prevented England, so prevented India, which of course they dominated through the East India Company, prevented Indian um, manufacturing selling clothing to the UK. But then over that 30-year period with dramatic industrialization, uh, England was able to produce not not the same quality, obviously, but far cheaper textiles. Mm. And they then demanded free trade uh, so they could export to India, and that was part of what led to the deindustrialization of India. Because when this was all when this is all happening, the the population breakup in India was seventy percent uh, urban and thirty percent rural, and through the uh, this, this whole process of forcing India to open up to exports from in, from uh, from the UK. Um, the ratio was reversed. You had massive famines, huge death. So the English countries- are bastards, aren't they? Do you imagine? Yeah, yeah, the Scottish are okay, but the English are bastards. Yeah. <laughs> so what about this crazy idea of uh, Bill Mitchell, the, the modern monetary theorist, that exports mm. are bad, imports are good? I mean, his argument is. Exports mean that we have to give something real to foreigners that we could use ourselves, and that is obviously an opportunity cost, he says. Imports, <laughs> I find this very hard to fathom, imports represent foreigners giving us something real that uh, they could use themselves, but we benefit from having. So the opportunity cost uh, lost is all theirs. I mean, Is that, that a direct quote? Yeah. That stands Good. to me like modern monetary theory ignores money because if i export i get paid it gives me a foreign currency which i can then use to buy other stuff 
you know, stuff that I actually want rather than stuff that yeah. I might be making too much of. Yeah, I and mean, this, this is this is one of my main gripes about this because uh, when you look at where modern monetary theory came from, it was Warren Mosler was the originator of the concept. Stephanie Kelton, when she was Stephanie Bell, uh, acknowledged this, that Warren turned up and was saying to, you know, trying to find some economist who would accept his proposition that a government doesn't tax to spend, it spends to tax. And she said her initial reaction, we're all very sceptical about it, we didn't accept it. And then we checked the logic and found that he was right. And then, of course, I have complete agreement with that particular side of modern monetary theory. But Warren also came up with a line that exports are a cost and imports are a benefit. Why does he even now, go there? Well, I mean, it just because I think what part, happens partly because I, I mean, I'm not going to dive into trying to work out the psychology, his psychology here. But what I think was going on was that he was also running uh, at various times running for the president of American presidential election. And partly he was saying you don't need to worry about the trade deficit. Now, uh, and and then and the argument would trade deficit is actually good because exports are a cost and imports are a benefit. Now, that you know th- that can be used by the reserve currency country, which obviously America is. Uh, it can't be used as an argument anywhere else. Um, I think it's a false argument in either situation. Yeah, well, if you, and, produce, and yet- if you produce a lot of of something, and you've got no market for it domestically because everyone's already got one. Uh, then you, I mean, uh, you know, even yeah, it's not an opportunity cost. This, 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 yeah. is, this is the point. I mean, that's why I wanted to check that it was a direct quote from Bill, mm. uh, because what on earth is the concept of opportunity cost doing turning up in a non in a post Keynesian uh, argument? Because opportunity cost is a straight neoclassical concept, and this is one of the things that most let's have a talk about opportunity cost one day. I think we have done once once in the past. Yeah, we have we? a couple of times. Okay, we've but done two hundred and fifty episodes. We've talked about everything at least yeah. twice, Steve. Okay, the opportunity cost <laughs> argument says that uh, if if you do one thing, you can't do another. Mm. Therefore, the cost of doing something is what you can't do instead. Yeah, and that is something which is very sensible at the individual level. So there's only you know twenty four hours in a day. If you sleep for twelve, you can only be awake for 12 if you sleep for eight yeah, you can yeah. be awake for 16 it's it's it makes absolute sense at the individual level but at the at the economy level the only way it makes sense is if you are have a hundred percent capacity utilization of your of your resources if you have full employment not just of labor but of machinery as well and that is not the case we 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 know we MMT is all a large part of it is trying to achieve full employment of labour. But again, looking at the empirical data, even if you achieved full employment of labour, and I think you can regard the sixties, uh, the period, the early sixties to the early seventies as a period of full employment in America. Even when you have unemployment at you know, very very low levels, then you still have capacity utilisation of below ninety percent. There was at least ten percent spare capacity because. Mm. In a capitalist economy, it is, in particularly a growing capitalist economy, it's sensible to have excess capacity, both because when you invest, you have to uh, build for a factory to, for sales for the next 10 or 15 years, not today's sales. So you build it big enough for its growth uh, intention. And then secondly, with, ex- with excess capacity, you can compete with uh, your, your competitors. Uh, if they, they slip up, you can fill up the the hole they leave in the market. So the opportunity cost makes no sense as a macroeconomic concept, and yet it's being used there to justify an argument for modern monetary well, group, the people well, who, just, who, who just, propose just in, modern monetary just in, Yeah, I think it's a direct quote. I mean, but anyway, the, the, the gist of his point is that, you know, exports are uh, exports are, are bad and, and imports are good. But, I mean, the, I mean, I mean even no, if you no. go back, even if you go back to, you know, 
Adam Smith's argument, and you know, he's, maybe here's where an area of conventional economics that would be hard to argue against. You know, the buyer is giving up what he values less to buy something that he values more. So if I export what I don't value and I buy, but someone else values more, then you both win. I mean, that's, and I similarly, you know, I buy something that's not valued a great deal overseas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, you know, maybe the manufacturers of iPhones don't value it very much because they don't get very good uh, uh, broadband connections there. Reception in America. Yeah. And uh, and, and we we value it a great deal. So, I mean, I mean, that goes, that's a, you know, that, that goes, that seems like unarguable logic, unless perhaps you're Bill Mitchell, because it goes against everything he's saying. <laughs> I think it's contradictory. And this is what I, I mean, it, mm. it irritates me that it's still part of it. If you have to drag in a neoclassical concept of opportunity cost to justify an argument, in my opinion, you've already lost the argument. Mm. Um, it, 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 it does not apply at the macro level. And come, rather than, uh, you know, exports being a cost because, oh dear, we could have used that Mercedes-Benz locally, um, exports enable you to use excess capacity, which would otherwise be unused, and you therefore have higher costs and lower, lower, higher costs per unit and lower profit. Well, um, so yeah. it's it's eminently sensible that in, in that sense, exports are a gain in monetary terms because you get monetary revenue you wouldn't otherwise get, and also in physical terms because since you're using a higher proportion of your unutilized capacity, you have lower costs uh, per unit than your rivals do. Yeah. So. Uh, it, it is it is just a wrong-headed piece of thinking, and I would just you know wish somebody would say, look, Warren, that's one one lines one 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 uh, one slogan turn. we disagree with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. throw it away. Sorry, look, next time away. Uh, we we're doing a podcast called "Not All Contrarians Are the Same," so we'll no doubt yeah, revi- yeah. revisit money monetary <laughs> theory. But is there just finishing off today? Then is there an optimum level? Do you believe? I mean, you you talked about uh, how Keynes was talking about the bank or so you'd have plus or minus by a certain percentage. Is there a, a, an optimum level where a t- trade surplus or or a deficit doesn't really matter. Like, is it, you know, four or five percent? I know I wouldn't go four or five. I'd go in the sort of uh, minus two to plus two range. And you also have countries which are never going to be able to, uh, you know, to to reach a uh, even a a, a balanced trade because they're too small. Uh, without enough, uh, you know, tourism features to make up for it for a tourism trade. So there are some countries which are going to be chronically stuck with with trade deficits. Um, and how do you fix that so, without going down the road of the Bancor, all those developing no, countries that yeah. are indebted to, to, to the West to buy stuff that they need to try and get themselves out of the situation, which they never do? I mean, how, yeah. how, how do you fix that issue? Well, that, that, the whole, that, that was part of the design of the bank corps, was the yeah. bank corps was, was effectively an international trade system as well as a, a system for regulating, uh, was an international aid as well as international trade. And you know, I think you know, Keynes thought it through very, very well, and that's what we should have had. And it's one of these catastrophes of history that we got the American dollar as the reserve currency in the first place. Um, but it, having you know, said all that, I, I think that you'd be, as the bank corps itself was targeting, uh, trying to keep the range of trade surpluses of no greater than and, and deficits of minus two to plus two percent of GDP was the sensible target. Right, but no one's going to buy into that if they've got a trade surplus which is considerably more than that. So China's not going to want it, and uh, the US isn't going to want to give away its reserve currency status. So yeah, well, like in Germany, Germany was running a trade surplus at various times of ten percent of GDP. The Netherlands is similar. Mm. Uh, Japan has been running a large trade surplus, and that's effectively giving them a, a cheap source of investment funds. Yeah. Uh, so then they were going to you know argue against it. The loser out of this is the country that insisted on being the reserve currency in the first place, which is America. 
Right. Okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll no doubt come back and visit that again. Look, uh, that's it for today. Yeah. Let's look at uh, the contrarians, yourself included, Steve Keane. Uh, we'll look at that next week. Good to talk. Okay. And that's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve again next week. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.